listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. This is Jess O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist. Here, thanks to Desire Resorts in Mexico and throughout the world, check them out at Desire Resorts on Insta on all social media and come find me at Desire down in Mexico, just south of Cancun in October. Brandon and I will be there, so check the event page for that. Today, we are going to be talking about polyamory. Is it on the rise? Are thruples and quads becoming more normalized? Is polyamory the solution to failing monogamy? Joining me today is Jenny Yuen, author of a new book, Polyamorous, with Dunder and Press and a Toronto-based journalist. Hi there, Jenny. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks for being here. So you have a new book coming out, Polyamorous. How did you even stumble into writing about polyamory? So uh, it actually took place in 2015. I was at uh, John Cillian, who's a local counselor. He had a, a book launch for Rob Ford, um, a book that he had written. And I remember kind of milling about with a lot of other book people and um, wanted to pitch the idea of writing a book on polyamory, but also thought it was, I don't know, maybe kind of too radical or, or people just wouldn't be interested in the topic. So um a colleague of mine who used to work at the uh, newspaper I work for uh, knew people in publishing and and knew that uh, Dunder and Press was looking for someone to write a book on open relationships and non-monogamy. So I met with them and um, you know set up a couple meetings and yeah, the rest is history. So um, yeah, I wanted to write a, a snapshot of my own experience to kind of start from there and then expand on just other broad areas of polyamory because it's so uh, complicated and complex and nuanced and there's not a lot of reportage done on it. So, um, and I specifically wanted to focus on Canada because we have different laws than the U S and, and uh, different social attitudes as well. Okay. So how are our laws different in Canada with regard to polyamory? Is it, do the laws facilitate couples who want to embrace this arrangement or are there greater impediments here than the states, for example? Uh, so, with the U.S., uh, I know there U.S. and Canada are similar in the the sense that poly, um, polygamy is illegal. But in 2011, uh, there was a Supreme Court uh, challenge, and it, it lasted for about a year. And um, there was a, a lot of special interest groups that took place. Uh, sorry, that took part in it. And um, in the end, the judge basically said, as long as these relationships aren't formalized, meaning you no marriage ceremony, even uh, informal, then it's totally fine in Canada. So that was a huge step for the uh, polyamorous community in Canada. And we haven't seen anything quite like that in the U.S. Okay. And, you know, before we go on, how do you define polyamory? So I, I would say that polyamory is um, having multiple relationships at once with everyone's knowledge and consent. And it's it's built on honesty, trust, and respect. And it's not so much about the sex, but more about fostering loving relationships. 
And uh, I think that's where a lot of people kind of get confused about what polyamory actually is, or they have certain preconceived notions or perceptions about it. Right. They think it's just one big sex romp. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just like a huge orgy uh, or an excuse to cheat is another one, or it's just a, a weird thing. Like it's not a, a normal or um, uh, a real choice that people can make in terms of having a, a different kind of a relationship. And now there are different types of polyamory. There are all these words tossed around polyfidelity, hierarchical polyamory, non hierarchical polyamory. V arrangements. Sure. So let's let's talk really briefly about those, just to give people an idea, because polyamory is quite an umbrella term, correct? Sure. Yeah. So polyamory kind of falls under the whole huge umbrella of non-monogamy, and so when we talk about non-monogamy, we can uh, say that it also technically could be cheating because you're being non-monogamous, but in a way that is being deceptive to your partner. So polyamory is ethical, uh, ethical, I'm saying, in the sense that you have everyone's consent and knowledge. Everyone knows what's, what's in store and on board and any sort of guidelines and boundaries. So uh, in terms of uh, different categories within polyamory. Uh, we have polyfidelity, which is basically a relationship that involves more than two people, but doesn't permit other the members of the relationship to seek additional partners outside of said relationship. So uh, at least not without the approval and consent of existing members. We have uh, hierarchical polyamory, which is a structure where there is like a rank and order. So uh, let's say that you're a couple and then you're the primary uh, couple, like the, the primary partner. And then any external partners would be like a, a secondary or tertiary. And it kind of falls into um, uh, rank in that way. And uh, there are often a lot of problems with hierarchical polyamory, as uh, a lot of people will say. And um, so non-hierarchical is the opposite of that. Uh, so no primary, secondaries, and everyone is on equal footing. Uh, so a V arrangement is when, if you think of the letter V, there's three people in that relationship. And uh, the the person in the middle is romantically involved with the other two partners, but the his or her other two partners aren't involved with each other. So um, they can be, you know, obviously have an emotional relationship together, but they're not romantically or sexually involved. And um, the person in the middle is usually called either the hinge or the pivot. Uh, and then there's another category, which actually could be monogamous as well, too, which is the rela relationship anarchy. So that means it's like a, a philosophy or practice. And when uh, people are free to engage in any relationships they choose and uh, are, have the freedom and desirability and, and necessary traits in, that, in healthy relationships, no so the, they, they are not entering the relationships from a coerced or restricted manner. So it's basically a DYI relationship. Um, you kind of set your own boundaries, your own rules, and it doesn't have to follow the, we have to move in together after six months and we have to get married and have kids. It's, uh, it's falling off of the relationship escalator. Right. And relationship, <laughs> yeah, relationship anarchy is such an interesting one to me because it really not only highlights individual autonomy um, and it's rooted yeah. in political philosophy of anarchy, but it also doesn't necessarily prioritize 
romantic or sexual relationships over platonic ones. And that's how it's different than exactly non-hierarchical hierarchical polyamory. This is a lot for people, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and I've spoken with a, a number of relationship anarchists that say that uh, they kind of see their friends and their family as as, um, as important as any sort of romantic partners that would come into their life. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting concept, actually. And I think that the philosophy of relationship anarchy may be something that a lot of monogamous people actually embrace without labeling it as such. So, for example... I have girlfriends who are who have like a best friend, let's say a very, very close girlfriend, and then they have their husband. And they joke that they wish they could marry their best friend. Like they're actually closer to their <laughs> best friend than their husband. I'm not in that situation. Like I'm I'm very, very close with my intimate partner. But I, I always right. kind of admire them. And there's a part of me that's a little bit really curious about how they can be so close to a platonic partner i've just never had that um right and so relationship anarchy to some degree embraces that i I would agree with that and um it's interesting i think a lot of people have their they do their things in in the relationships that they don't they're kind of unconscious of it like there's no like oh i was doing polyamory for a long time but i just didn't know that there was a, a name for it is what I keep on hearing when I was interviewing people. So I, I think, Hey, you know, whatever works for you, everyone's different and every relationship is different. So you gotta, right. you gotta do you. Right. And as you define all of these different types of polyamory, it's really just scratching the surface. The bottom line is people make relationships work in lots of different ways. Um, and you, you came at this book via personal experience first. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I, I have uh, two partners. Um, so I have a, a husband, legal husband. He's uh, named Charlie in the book. And um, mm-hmm. I have my other partner, uh, Adam, who's um, significantly older. He's a, a non-legal partner, but a, a life partner nonetheless. So um, yeah, so I, I started with the a personal experience and kind of expanded it from there. And um, did you want to know more about <laughs> my relationships or... If you're comfortable with that, yeah, I'm curious as to how you stumbled upon polyamory. Was it even a word you you were familiar with? Is it something you discussed? Um, like what What's your journey? So uh, I I read I wrote about it in the book where I actually came out of a very messy affair, and um, after seeing the destruction of what cheating can cause, uh, I didn't want to a do it again. B live my life that way and I wanted open openness and transparency I wanted honesty and um, you know no matter if that meant that relationships would close or if I wouldn't get something that I didn't want uh, or yeah exactly so I ended up um, meeting two men basically a couple weeks apart from each other and we came into this love triangle for a long time and uh, I was honest with each other from the beginning that I felt feelings for both of them but the three of us were kind of stuck for a long time and it was actually my older partner Adam who after seeing just how heartbreaking it was that we couldn't make this decision to choose because our connections were so strong in different ways with me with uh, both of these partners that he said well you know why don't we see if the three of us can sort of work together on on this and it opened this door into this whole new world that I 
had no idea was even a valid, you know, relationship choice. And um, we started exploring polyamory that way. And it's, uh, it's, it's worked out for us so far. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we're all happy. And um, it's been great. It's been a, a big learning experience for all of us. I'm sure. And, and it's interesting because you're in this, let's call it alternative arrangement, you have to put all of mm-hmm. this work in. Whereas I think when people, you know, fall in love and get married and, and, and fall into the default setting of monogamy, they don't realize how much work it is. Like, I don't think any poly person just says, oh, let's just do this. This is easy. I've got four partners, no problem. Let's make assumptions. Whereas in monogamous relationships, we do tend to make a lot of assumptions, even about what monogamy True. means. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, a lot of couples, I think, that may be afraid to uh, broach topics like, oh, uh, where are we going and, and how do we define ourselves? And, and instead of having these uncomfortable, open uh, conversations about stuff, they might feel inclined to bury things or, as you say, make assumptions. So, um, you know, polyamory isn't, isn't better. Uh, it's just different and it involves a lot more work in terms of communication and processing feelings and, and uh, scheduling. Scheduling is a huge part of it. Uh, iCal saved my life. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I, I, there is a tendency for people in uh, mono relationships to, to do that. But it's, uh, it's something that, you know, maybe they can learn a bit more from polyamorous people about just the whole communication and scheduling and, and uh, open communication things. So I'm glad you said that it's not better. It's just different because I do think we sometimes see consensually non-monogamous relationships. Um, We paint paint them with two strokes. So on one side, people who are not (laughs) consensually non-monogamous view poly relationships as problematic or bound to fail because there are these additional complexities, um, additional relationships, and more people in your life. So some people will say, yeah, let's see how that works out in 10 years, which is such a nasty way to think mm-hmm. about anybody. Oh, but, yeah, um, yeah, we got that from, we got that uh, initially as well, too. It's just like this, it'll never work. I think it's crazy. It'll fail. So <laughs> it, it's well, a bit disheartening to hear that. I mean, the data on monogamous relationships, we have data to suggest that you're just as likely to fail. So it, it's, right. it's very easy to look at open relationships that way. Now, on the other side, I do hear poly people tout polyamory as the solution to failing monogamy or a more evolved form of relationship. Um, You know, they talk about compersion, the experience of not experiencing jealousy, but always experiencing pleasure via a partner's pleasure. Uh, But the the thing is, it's more nuanced than that. It's not better. It's not worse. It works for some people and not for others. As you interviewed people for the book, uh, what's your take on that? Did you develop some insights that might have surprised you? I I totally agree with that. I emphasize this in my book that polyamory isn't better or enlightened. It's just different. Uh, it doesn't protect you from cheating or jealousy. And especially you had mentioned compersion. So compersion is a place that you can get to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will or you have to get to because you still will feel jealousy. Like it's just, whether you're in a poly or monogamous relationship, jealousy exists. 
Uh, it's just how you react to it and how you process it and um, come to terms with it in, in many ways. So uh, that is the part that involves a lot of trust and work. And that can actually, you know, that can happen in monogamous relationships as well, too. So, um, yeah, poly people, <laughs> poly people often joke that there's no sex going on because you spend all night talking and processing your feelings, which is actually kind of true. So, um, can I, you speak a yeah, bit I more to compersion? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe your experience. So, compar so compersion is, um, it's a made up word, but a, a lot of people in the polyamorous community, uh, use it. And it basically means that it's feeling a sense of joy that your partner is, um, feeling joy, even though you may not be the cause of that feeling of joy. So it's, it's kind of like, um, if I can, it's, it's, it's like if your uh, best friend was getting married and you're feeling that sense of joy for them, but uh, instead of your best friend, it's, it's your husband or wife or your partner, or whatever, right? So it's, uh, it's a great feeling. <laughs> you can get to it, but uh, it's, uh, again, as I say, it's not always attainable and you don't necessarily have to have it with the, uh, with you know, metamors, which are your partner's partners. And I like that you remind us, because I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that before, that of course you can experience that in a monogamous relationship as well. You can feel joy for your partner's joy, even if you're not the source of that joy. And it's a reminder mm -hmm. that you have many sources of joy and sources of pleasure, maybe even sources of, of, of eroticism, regardless of whether you have one partner or 10. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of human feelings <laughs> within polyamory, but it doesn't mean that it's just bound uh, bound by these, you know, by these guidelines. It, people in monogamous relationships can also feel them as well, too. And so you must face a good degree of prejudice. Uh, I'm always curious as to why people care about what other people are doing in their relationships. What do you yep. think people are really afraid of? Like when somebody judges you for your relationship arrangement, what, what do you think the source of that judgment really is? I, I think that uh, going against the status quo has always been uh, a little bit unnerving for some people. Uh, some people confuse polyamory with polygamy, which is uh Right with child bride, child abuse, and religious connotations, whereas um, polyamory is very uh, egalitarian. Everyone gets to come in and out of relationships as they choose to. Like there's no uh, there's no uh, gender bias, you know, in terms of of uh, one man, several wives. It's it can be in any kind of configuration. Um, I think maybe people think that the jealousy factor may be too difficult to handle. So if they can't put themselves in those shoes, then uh, how how can somebody else, you know? Like, And if the perception is that it's, polyamory is about sex only rather than relationships, then they think it's like a huge orgy and people are getting STIs all the time and uh, people are getting hurt because they can't commit. That's another sort of a, a big misconception about poly. Uh, and they may think it's a slippery slope. Like when gay marriage um, first became a, a legal issue, they people were freaking out and some people still freak out about it. So I think uh, when when uh, 
you can combine all these factors together, people can be a little bit weirded out by polyamory. But you know what? Um, all these people tend to be people that are okay living their lifestyle the way that they are. They may not necessarily be out, but I, I think they are more happy being who they really are in relationship structures that, that suit them rather than listening to what society uh, ascribes to what a healthy or a good relationship is. Right. And, and living out must be a challenge because the world just isn't set up for threesomes or quads, right? Everything is privileged for monogamous couples. Yep. You think about simple things that you know, someone like me with one partner might take for granted, like travel or buying a property or parenting or getting an invite to a wedding. Um, you know, you're never going to, almost never going to get a plus two, although that's changing in some communities. So have you faced any of these just practical obstacles or did you hear about this from your book contributors in terms of, you know, getting an invitation to Thanksgiving dinner or only having so many tickets to go to your child's holiday concert. Um, I recently saw a post from a friend who is Polly, and she she purchased a house in Toronto with two of her partners. And at every stage, she faced not only judgment, but the onus of responsibility fell on her to educate the realtor, and then the mortgage broker, and then the insurance agent, and then the the neighbors. So, what what's been the biggest challenge on your end? just practically speaking? Um, for us, not so much, but from other people that I've, I've interviewed, they, uh, they have said parenting uh, and coming out as poly parents are, is, is a huge issue just because they're afraid that um, people that don't understand what polyamory is or judge them for being or having more than one partner, uh, well, they'll call the CAF. I mean, it's as simple as that, and they're afraid that they'll have their kids taken away. and We've um, we've actually seen a couple uh, law cases uh, recently that has I think the, the most recent one was in Newfoundland where a, a judge said that being um, having a, a polyamorous family doesn't have a detrimental effect on children. So I mean there's there's case law to kind of back it up, but at the same time I think a lot of people that are poly parents um, they still are very leery about coming out about the number of partners that they have because of that reason. Uh, I've heard people that work in schools um, that are around children, they, they also have difficulty coming out as poly just because, again, it's that perception that it's about sex. So um, people will call, uh, again, CAS or, or get them fired just because they don't want their children to be around somebody that's polyamorous. In terms of... Um, in terms of uh, property and people that, and wills, uh, because our, as you say, our, our government is not set up for more than two. Uh, I've heard a lot of people just make their own wills and contracts and they sign off with a family lawyer that way uh, because there just isn't the legal protection for them. So um, they, they kind of have to make up their own as for now. Like, I mean, that's, that's the only option that they really have. So um, I think we we still have a long way to go when it comes to to all of that because I mean and I understand because in terms of the legal part of it, if you had more than a couple, then does that how many how many partners would you be able to have and 
how would that look on on paper in terms of uh, lawmaking? So uh, insurance companies, <laughs> it, it would be a, a huge sort of uh, mess. But uh, you know, the, at the same time, there are these relationships that exist and they're valid, and um, people, you know, are kind of stuck in the middle trying to figure out what they they can do to protect themselves. Right, and you have a right to love. I mean, that's so scary to me that you could lose your job because you love more than one person. Whereas, I mean, you're Mm -hmm. talking about a teacher or somebody who works in a school, whereas if you cheat on your partner, you can't lose your job. And people are cheating all the time. And and I always talk about the difference between any form of consensual non-monogamy and cheating because people tend to conflate the two and say, oh, it's just an excuse to cheat. But there's a really strong and distinct line between cheating and consensual non-monogamy and that's consent (laughs) you have the consent and that's why you call it ethical non-monogamy as opposed to just cheating which is sure a form of non-monogamy but not consensual so yeah that's really really concerning now if there's a takeaway from writing this book something that we can all learn from what would you suggest as like a core message or a core lesson you've learned writing polyamorous? Um, I would say that there's uh, a willingness to invest more work into relationships to make them work. Um, There's definitely more open communication. And um, I think poly people aren't afraid to feel uncomfortable feelings, uh, such as jealousy, and to address problems as they arise rather than burying them and having them explode later, like uh, explode Mm -hmm. later, like emotional time bombs. Uh, there's a transparency and honesty, obviously, that, that should come with polyamory and um, uh, a flexibility to transition. So uh, poly people may not see a breakup as the end-all, be-all. And um, for some that ascribe to relationship anarchy, it could, it could mean that, you know, so the relationship has to transition into something else rather than end. And then uh, everyone's, you know, devastated and heart gets broken. Not that that doesn't happen in polyamory, but... Um, there's just more of a it, when you look at relationships a little bit differently, then it doesn't have to follow um, the prescribed set of milestones. And if it doesn't, then it, it, it's a failure. Uh, whereas polyamory, polyamorous people may not see it as as that. So um, yeah, you can basically DIY your own relationships, and um, you don't have to expect one person to be everything to you. So they don't. It's not a lover, a best friend, a co-parent, a therapist, a housekeeper, <laughs> all in one person, which is just way too much pressure for anybody. And, but where um, can I find one of those? I lover think... and housekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds pretty good. Might have to, I think you may have to pay extra for that one. Um, Isn't and, that always uh, the answer? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, so polyamory has a lot of benefits for people who like being in these relationships. But again, it's isn't for everyone. And and that's okay. Really, honestly. (laughs) Good, good. Well, thank you so much. I wish you luck not only in your relationship, it sounds like you've got something really great. But also with this book, which is launching in November, you have a you have the book launch in person in Toronto at lit. It's the Toronto lit up book launch for polyamorous November 16th at type books on Queen West in the evening and people can find more information at polyamorousbook.com and we'll be sure to link all of your handles as well Jenny. Perfect thank you so much Jeff. Thanks for being here.
Whenever I consider polyamory or any form of consensual non-monogamy, I'm reminded that relationship problems and relationship benefits apply across the board, regardless of whether you're monogamous or polyamorous. And the answers to the questions we might ask of polyamorous people are really the same, even though we see it differently because we're so conditioned to see monogamy as the norm. So, for example, what do you do if you're feeling neglected? Well, every person in every type of relationship will run into this at some point in time. Unless you live, I don't know, in a cabin in the woods with your partner and don't have any other people in your life or any job, you know, you might feel neglected in your relationship because your partner is working too much. You might feel neglected because your partner pays so much attention to the kids or because your partner spends too much time on the golf course or is out having drinks all hours of the night with friends. So whether it's another partner, another lover, or someone else or something else that you perceive is taking them away from you, you're in the same scenario and you have to tell them what you want and why you want it. Now, most of us wait until we're really upset, really mad to speak up. And then we complain instead of stating and explaining our desires. So instead of, I love spending time with you and I feel so much more connected when we sleep in together on a Saturday, we lead with something like, every Saturday it's golf, golf, more golf. You're married to the golf course. We make complaints instead of stating our requests or desires. But in polyamorous relationships, although these same feelings can arise, of course, there tends to be more discussion about how you divide your time, for example. And this to me is a reminder that whether you're poly, monogamous, or somewhere in between, we have a lot to learn from well, what I'll call the ideal poly model, because not every person practices it perfectly. Um, and so the first lesson to me is that no partner can fulfill all of your needs. Your emotional, psychological, practical, and physical energy will always be divided among different people and tasks, and so will your partner your partners. So this is healthy and it's good for your relationship. It only becomes problematic when you don't talk about your desires and expectations. So talk about your expectations of dividing time, for example, from the onset. Divide it up with specific guidelines if you like. You might ask, okay, for example, what time should we turn off our phones at night so that we're not distracted? Or what time will you come home from work? Or what time will you come home from your date with Sarah tonight? These questions all stem from the same need to understand one another's plans so that you can allocate time. Now one happens to involve another lover, Sarah in this case, but the same principles apply. No relationship involves 100% commitment of time to one partner because presumably you have a job and friends and other commitments. In poly relationships, other relationships with other people may be among these commitments, but whether you're out with a friend or a lover, 
You simply need to communicate your needs and be clear about your plans and expectations. And you'll be better off, whether you're monogamous or polyamorous. So what I'm really saying here is that the needs are the same. But I think because there are multiple people in poly relationships, sometimes you are better at communicating them. And this brings me to, I think, another important lesson that can be drawn from polyamorous relationships. And this relates to the volume of communication required in order to have a happy, lasting relationship. And you heard Jenny say, and I've heard many poly people joke that we spend all of our time talking about sex as opposed to actually having sex. And this can be a really good thing because research shows that talking about sex leads to better sex. But just in terms of the amount of communication, I think the voluminous communication that's required to navigate relationships that involve more people tends to produce more positive results. I think a lot of monogamous people use their own version of scripted shorthand, for example, to negotiate relationships. And this is what leads to miscommunication and disappointment. So for example, monogamy is assume or, or assumed or implied. And if it's not clearly defined and we don't agree on what monogamy is, that's when we find ourselves in hot water. And, and I'm not suggesting that poly relationships are better, but simply that the volume of communication required to involve three or more people can lead to clearer expectations. And so I think all of us can benefit from this about, you know, what I'm saying is talk more, <laughs> spend more time delineating expectations. And Jenny also brought up another important point that is relevant to all relationships. And this is really important to me. This involves negative emotions and the benefits of leaning into them instead of avoiding them. In many relationships, I think we avoid negative emotions with the exception of anger, or we allow all negative emotions to manifest as anger or frustration. And instead, we need to acknowledge feelings that make us uncomfortable. Maybe I shouldn't even call them negative because they're normative and they can be constructive. Sadness, fear, insecurity, jealousy, regret, distress, unease, uh, agitation, anxiety. We all experience these feelings, but we often don't talk about them with our partners. When is the last time you discussed your greatest fears or talked about your greatest regrets and how you can learn from them? I'm not suggesting that all polyamorous people have these deep conversations, but in multiple partnered relationships, you do need to consider these feelings and work through them. And I do find that polyamorous people are more likely to talk about these uncomfortable feelings because they've given themselves permission to feel them in the first place. Like you have a right to feel scared. You're allowed to feel sad. You're allowed to feel jealous. Now I've run into some poly people who paint what I call a perfect poly picture. Oh no, we have no jealousy, no insecurity, no distress. And I'll tell you, I don't buy it because you're human. 
And if being polyamorous could eradicate these emotions, more people would do it in spite of the social condemnation, or at least they'd find a way to profit from it. But you can't. You cannot eradicate emotions. You can only work with them, respond to them, and you know, work with constructive thoughts and behaviors to enhance their impact, whether that means minimizing sadness or giving yourself permission to feel it so that you can overcome it, so that you can learn from it. So that's it. You got to own your emotions, talk about them. Don't feel ashamed to turn to your partner for support. And if you do feel ashamed, you got to ask yourself why. Why do you feel your partner's not willing to be there for you when you're sad, when you're scared, when you're insecure? Because it's not fair to be there only for someone when times are great. And finally, I think poly relationships remind us that we want more excitement. We want novelty. We want novelty when it comes to conversation, but also when it comes to sex. And you may not want to hear this, but even though sex isn't the biggest part of being poly, we all know that sex can very easily get boring over time, especially when it's with the same person, in the same bed, in the same position, with the same moves. Right, Brandon? No, just kidding. Brandon's not here, <laughs> and I'm teasing him. But it doesn't have to be this way, even with one person. You don't, you don't have to run out and get a new partner to make things exciting. You just have to do new and scary stuff together, even if it's with the same person you've been with for 10, 20 years. Listen, this is something people just don't want to admit to, but a new partner is always more exciting. I'm going to say almost always because someone's going to argue with me, okay? But a new something new is almost always more exciting because of the risk involved. Now, a new partner may not feel better. It may not be more pleasurable because maybe they don't know what makes you tick. They don't know that it's right nipple, left ball, right nipple, left ball. But it's inevitably more thrilling because you're dealing with the fear and risk of the unknown. So if you want that excitement, you've got to do things that make you uncomfortable. Whether you're monogamous or polyamorous, maybe it's having sex in the woods or anal sex. Maybe it's pegging or filming yourselves or talking about having a threesome without doing it or going to a sex club or visiting a nude beach or learning how to throw a whip, taking a class on bondage or flogging, uh, using hot wax, tying yourself to a cross, using a new toy, wearing one another's underwear. I don't care what it is. If you want excitement, which I think all people want, You've got to do things that are a little bit scary. And I think that's something that we can learn from polyamorous relationships. They really are a reminder that humans crave excitement and humans crave risk and novelty to a different degree for each person. And excitement comes with the unknown. And I've talked about this before if you've listened to my passion podcast, but it's really, I think, an important reminder. As much as I even you know, I'm familiar with this theory and engage with it on an ongoing basis. I know that I don't always apply it in my life. I need to be reminded that 
I need to do things to keep things exciting because I've been with my partner. I've been with Brandon for 17 years. I am not that exciting if I stay the same. Change is part of what makes things exciting. So I've talked your ear off with some lessons from polyamory. I'm going to leave it at that and say thank you so much to Jenny for joining me. Thank you for listening. Follow along at Sex with Dr. Jess. And if you've enjoyed this or any of the podcasts, please share and subscribe on your favorite podcast service. I'll be back at it again every Friday. Topics on sex, love, and relationships. And if you have topic suggestions or questions, please do send them in via our website, contact form, sexwithdrjess.com. Wherever you are, have an amazing week. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.